The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. During our study in the Gospel of John, I think you're going to enjoy our study this morning because we're going to look at what appears at a superficial level to involve something you can all relate to, at least intellectually, and that is persecution, when humanity is harsh or evil against other humanity. I want to take it to a deeper level and look at the source of that persecution, the source of that conflict, and it's satanic and demonic, and it's critical because in the Western world, in the U.S., in Europe, you get a different perspective because of the Judeo-Christian culture in which we live in. We could comment on that and criticize that all day long, but it creates a different environment for Christian persecution, and so I want to focus on the spiritual warfare aspect of it. To put John into context, John 15, as you recall from a couple of weeks ago, I taught you uh, that famous passage that starts John 15, to abide in me and I will abide in you, and that's the believer in Christ. We then talked two weeks ago, or three weeks ago when I was last here, on believer and believer relationship. And that's when I taught you the idea of earthly angels that can uh, encourage you or that you can encourage other people and how Jesus told the disciples, you guys got to keep each other going. This week, we look at the last couple of verses in, in chapter 15, and we're going to look at the first couple of verses of chapter 16 because it's the believer and the world. And our key term is hate, and our key concept is persecution. So you're going to see as we go through these how that impacts it. We start in verse 18 of John 15, and I've highlighted the key phrase that serves as kind of the foundation of what I'm going to teach you this morning. Uh, John says in verse 18, quoting Jesus, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I've chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Now, I highlighted the five times in this little two verses the world is mentioned. Understand, it's not talking about the planet Earth. There's a Greek term for that. Don't view this as Mother Nature. Don't view this as some nebulous Eastern concept of the universe. This is a biblical phrase based on a specific Greek word for the world system that we live in. From an earthly view, that might be some kind of mystic spirituality. From a Christian perspective, it is clearly a reference to the fallen earthly uh, environment that we have after the fall in Genesis chapter 2, led by Satan. Look at some cross-references. John, uh, 1 John, the, the, the epistle of John, uh, chapter 5, verse 19. John said much later in his life, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Other cross-reference, 2 Corinthians 4.4, Satan, who is the god of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. And the final cross-reference, very famous verse, Ephesians 6, verses 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly realms. So when John says, quoting Jesus, the world is going to hate you, it's not just simply a reference to men are going to hate other men. 
Women are going to hate women. People are going to hate people. It's not the reference. The reference is who's controlling that situation. And it's satanic and demonic. The reason why that's important is because in the Western world, our idea of persecution is pretty remote. We're going to talk in a couple of slides about what's going on in the world today. Christian persecution is greater today than it was in the time of the apostles. Christian persecution is greater in 2021 than it was in 40 AD or 80 AD or 180 AD or any, any other time in history. The reason why is uh, multifaceted, but what you've got to understand is in the Western world, the persecution is at the spiritual level. Right. The human versus human persecution we get to is more in the form of social rejection. Right. The greatest persecution most Christians in Houston, Texas will face this week is someone not inviting them to lunch. Okay, as opposed to being in certain parts of the Middle East or China or Russia, we're coming to a Bible study like this this morning, literally could have you imprisoned, beaten and in some places killed. In our world, we don't encounter that. Our persecution is at the spiritual warfare level. So we're going to talk about that today. We're going to do a deeper dive on what's going on. If you want an illustration of what I'm talking about biblically, the greatest illustration of the spiritual war concept of persecution that takes place individually, unseen, in the heart, mind, and soul of the believer is in the book of Job. The book of Job gives us a divine kind of heavenly perspective on what's going on. If you were sitting next to Job, his persecution would be the three idiot friends of his that kept asking him bad questions and giving him bad advice. Those guys are total idiots. But if you were in, in next to Job, that's all you would see. Through the book, though, written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you see who the player is, who the main player is, who the guy controlling the puppet strings. It's Satan himself. He goes to heaven. He says, God, can I mess with Job? You see him next to Job as he's talking to his friends. Satan is a major part of the book of Job to give us a perspective that you may think the persecution you face is from somebody not inviting you to lunch or actually doing something much, much worse to you. But the perspective is it's Satan and its forces that's really what's going on here. Now, if I go back to verses 18 and 19, I also highlight what is really going on because it's not an effort to thwart us. It's not an effort to discourage us. It's not an effort to dissuade us from doing what we want to do, like go to church or pray or do something with a significant other. What it's talking about is outright hatred. And it picks up on the Greek word with the greatest emotional punch to describe this word. In Greek, this is the strongest word you could come up with for an enmity, an anger, a hatred, a viciousness towards someone else. And so it describes in these two verses alone four times hatred. It picks it up four more times than the rest of the passage we're going to look at. The reason why that is critical is so you understand the nature of spiritual warfare. We can be at war as a country with somebody tomorrow, and most of us aren't going to feel hatred, right? The president could say there's something going on in some other country, and we're going to attack, and we're going to go to war. We're not going to feel hatred unless they actually do something to impact us here in Houston or wherever in the world you're watching this. But this, what's going on here is this description of the spiritual warfare. It's actual hatred. It's not something where people are just going to war and they're just fighting to fight. 
It's an actual hatred of us by Satan and his force. That's so critical to understand because when you understand that, it kind of puts you in a position to understand how we've got to respond to the attacks that we're under. Let me give you some insight. The world always hates nonconformity. Because this is true of any difference at all, it is even more true of the difference caused by a life transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. Because when I start talking about hatred, immediately people say, well, I don't understand. Why would they hate me? I'm such a good person. I'm just trying to be the light of Christ, the light of God. I'm just trying to spread the love of God. Why are people hating me so much? You've got to understand that a life transformed is a life that generates hatred in the heart and mind of Satan and all of his forces. So when they try to influence other people around us in the world, that hatred carries over. That hatred does not make logical sense. You can think about it all day long. It makes no logical sense. And the illustration I want to use drives this home from my most one of my favorite guys in history because he's a great Christian, and he's completely unknown to the history books. His name is James Hannaway. And in 1705, he came up with an invention that got him ridiculed in England because the idea of the parasol to shield a monarch from the sun was really popular back in uh, the Eastern world going back centuries. The French in the late 16, early 1700s started to copy the idea of the parasol and women would carry around this thing to keep the sun off of them. This guy on a mission trip to France looked at this thing and said, you know, if I waterproof one of those things, it might keep me dry the next time it rains in London. So he came up with the umbrella, his waterproofed parasol, and he brought it back to London. And the next time it rained, which was the very next day because it rains in London all the time, and he started carrying it around, they hated him. Because men would not carry something like that. Back in his day, if it started raining, you just got rained on if you were a guy. If you were a woman, you'd stay indoors. And so the idea of this guy walking around with what looked like a parasol, they literally threw rocks at him. They had their, the men would have their wives throw vegetables at him. They would throw names at him. So it took a long time for the idea of the umbrella to carry on some cultural normativeness And this guy basically said, I'm a Christian. God gave me this idea. I'm not going to be ashamed of it. I'm going to walk through London with my umbrella, and I'm dry, and the rest of those people are idiots. (laughs) And so James Hannaway, with God giving him strength in his conviction of it's okay for me to be different, is the reason why when it rains, you and I stay dry. Because God gave this guy strength to say it's okay to be different. As a Christian, you've got to understand You may try to be as inoffensive as possible. You may try to love the world. You may try to be the light of the world. People are going to hate you in time because you are doing something different, because you're saying something different, because your marriage represents something different. Your kids or grandkids represent something different. And that difference is what drives the hatred from Satan and his forces. Because if you just follow the world, you say you talk like the world in your language, you act like the world in your language, you do everything the world does— Satan doesn't need to mess with you. There's no hatred at all. But if all of a sudden you're being different to what message Satan is putting into the culture that we live in, all of a sudden you're a target to be taken out. Give me some more insight on this. Satan's dominion either loves or hates. There is no neutral ground. 
Satan does not have a non-reaction. It's either love or it's hatred. If you are rejecting the things of God, living with ego, living with self, Satan loves that. That's exactly what Satan wants you to do. You start doing the thing God wants you to do, start following scripture, you're going to get a hatred of Satan, and that's where the problem will become. The way this plays out in our lives runs the spectrum of humanity. Understand that we all have a fallen DNA. And that fallen DNA gives all of us a sinful desire in certain areas. Some people have a sinful desire towards certain things. Some people have a sinful desire towards other activities. Some people have a sinful desire for certain thoughts. Everybody's different. People have different magnetic draws. Think about the way you're genetically born. Some people love vegetables. Some people love fruit. Some people hate vegetables. Some people hate fruit. Some people love chocolate. Some people don't like chocolate. All that's genetically driven in terms of your likes and dislikes. Same thing with sin. Now, across the Christian spectrum, the way we see this for some people is just a whispering uh, of Satan and his forces to do something, to try something, some sin that you may do and then recoil from. For others, where Satan knows where you've got a weakness, you've got a genetic predisposition towards something, there's a little bit more whispering to pull you back into something you know you're trying to get out of. With others, it manifests in outright addiction. They just simply can't break from it. So when we think about those spectrums, those terminology, you immediately think of, well, it's good I'm not addicted to alcohol. It's good I'm not addicted to prescription drugs or I'm not addicted to illegal drugs. But there's a whole bunch of other things across the spectrum that we could look at and think, well, that's not really an addiction. But if it detracts us from the people that God wants us to be, it in fact is. There are people addicted to food. There are men addicted to golf. There are men and women addicted to their jobs. There are people addicted to other people. There's all kinds of different spectrums. We could talk about this in terms of whether it's good or how destabilizing or negative impact it might create. But what's important to realize is if it's keeping us from being the person God wants us to be, it's a playground for Satan to mess with our mind and whisper to us. To the person at one end of the spectrum where it's just a little bit of a temptation to do something that they know they're going to recoil from, that's Satan whispering a little bit. If it's at the other end of the spectrum with an outright addiction, it's Satan's chains holding them in addiction. Now, remember what I've taught you before. A believer cannot be inhabited by the demonic. With the Holy Spirit in our hearts, there's no room for Satan and his forces. But a believer can be influenced by Satan. People around us can influence us that have a demonic influence on them. Uh, Satan can whisper to us. Satan can uh, put us in situations or can manipulate certain situations we're in. That doesn't mean you're personally impacted by Satan. It just means Satan has a way to influence all of us, and we've got to be mindful of that. Cross-reference on that point is John, the, the epistle of John, chapter 2, verse 16. 1 John 2, 16. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Cross-reference the verses I gave you 10 minutes ago. What's the source of that? Satan and his forces. So everything in the world, no matter which end of the spectrum we find ourselves in, when Satan's whispering to us, pulling you back into sin, keeping you in addiction, whatever it might be, it's coming from Satan and his forces. Now, look at how verse 19 ends. Before I move on, I've highlighted 
Jesus' comment about I've chosen you out of it. That's a really important concept to remember because when you find yourself being tempted, when you find yourself being opposed, you're trying to do something good, you're trying to do something for God or his word or his message, his gospel, and you find yourself with opposition, with things just getting thrown up in your face, things aren't going quite the way you want them to go, or you find yourself just stuck in the pit of some kind of sin or something you're not supposed to be in or even an addiction, You've got to realize God chose you to come out of that world. It's a tremendous encouragement that when he calls us to become Christians, he calls us to live in the world, but to come out of the world in those magnetic sin nature draws we find ourselves in. Let me give you some insight on that. There's nothing Satan and the world hate more than God's election of his chosen children. That is why anytime someone wants to share that they are God's chosen person in the secular world and even in the liberal Christian world, that can create tremendous opposition, just outright hatred, because our sin nature wants to say we chose God. Our sin nature wants to say I'm a good Christian because look at all the checks I've got on my list. I prayed this week before I ate my meals. I went to church. I listened to a Bible study while I was driving. I did not cuss very much this week. Right? We got a long, long list of things we can like check the boxes on. And liberal, sinful human nature wants to say that means we're a good Christian. For us to say God chose me and there's nothing in me that merited his choice. For me to say I'm going to heaven because of nothing that I do. My good works are irrelevant. My church work is irrelevant. My attendance at church is irrelevant. My prayer time is irrelevant in terms of getting me into heaven. All those things can be good, but in terms of getting me into heaven, there's one reason and one reason alone. The atoning blood of Jesus Christ. To the rest of the world, that is offensive. So when Jesus says, I chose you, as encouraging as that is to us, that is offensive to Satan and all of his forces and the rest of the world who follows that. Now, look at verse 20. Jesus says, remember the word I spoke to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would keep yours. But they will do these things on, on, to you on account of my name because they don't know the one who sent me. Previously in the prior verses 18 and 19, it's all about hatred. In verse 20, it drives it down into what's going on, and that is persecution. The fruit of hatred is persecution. In our mind, the reason I'm teaching the lesson this week is to get your mind to a different place of realizing persecution is Satan and his forces in the people of our world against you today. It's not a matter of you reading horror stories of the Middle East. It's not a matter of you reading horror stories of modern day China or Russia or certain parts of Southeast Asia that have a heavy Muslim component with hatred towards Christianity. Those are real things and you ought to study them. What goes on today in your life and my life is a persecution driven by hatred because you're a Christian centered around your DNA. It's centered around your magnetic pull towards a sin, whether that's gossip, whether that's lust, whether that's sex, whether that's a person, whether that's a chemical, whether that's some, whatever the spectrum may be for you. The persecution in your life is typically in the Western world an unseen battleground. 
a battleground of the heart, a battleground of the mind, a battleground of the soul, because that's what Satan plays in the Western world. Now, can there be persecution here? Of course. Do we see it like we see it in the Middle East, in China and Russia today? No, we don't. Two kinds of persecution. Institutional, underneath a red bubble, government, military, school, legal system. That's what I just described in terms of the rest of the world. In the Western world, in the U.S., in most parts of Europe, it's incidental. It's individual, where one person hates you because you're a Christian. I encounter that in my legal in my legal practice. There are a handful of lawyers that hate me because they know I'm a Christian. I just know that and I deal with it and I love them to death as much as I can. There are people who will dislike you because you're a Christian, sometimes in work, sometimes in your neighborhood, sometimes even in your own extended family. That's not the type of persecution you face when it's institutional in some other parts of the world, but it's still very much real in our lives. Before we move on, let me just pause real briefly and put into your, into your, your consciousness the idea of institutional persecution. I did a little bit of research this week getting ready for the lesson. I know it's up on the screen. It's impossible to see from any kind of distance. I'll give you the highlights of why this is up on the screen. It says 340 million Christians today in 2021 are subject to persecution if they don't do the right things or say the right things in their culture, meaning one out of every eight Christians on the planet Earth are subject to serious institutional persecution today. There's a little chart in the middle of the page showing just since uh, 2014, the number of countries where your freedom and your life is in danger for going to church or praying out loud has gone from 106 just five years ago to 100 and what is that, 45? 145 last year and this year. The number is increasing. Now, most of these are in the Middle East. Most of these are in what I would call Southeast Asia. In the Western world, we've got a little pocket of Venezuela that's a little carve out. Huge swaths of Russia, huge swaths of China, and then what I would call the Arabic world, the Muslim-influenced world that in many places, not all, but in many places has an outright hatred towards Christianity. Now, if you want to get a reminder of what's going on in the battleground of satanic warfare, read any of the blogs or the websites that track this stuff on a daily basis. They're really easy to find. Look at Christian persecution or Christian hatred 2021, you'll find a dozen of them. But if you want to study what's going on in the U.S., just look around your own life. It's pretty easy to find. But in these places that are in gray, North America, South America, the middle part or South Africa, parts of Europe, Australia, that kind of persecution is incidental. That's where the spiritual warfare is a battle of the mind. That's where the greatest opposition is typically a social rejection. Short of that, there's no fear. You're losing your freedom. You're losing your life. We just don't have those fears, thankfully, in the Western world. Now, I will say our culture is shifting, and we've got to be much more particular about this, particularly if you're in a Christian organization. If you lead or do volunteer work in a Christian organization, the prospect of the world being hostile to you is one you need to be more and more careful about. Uh, I'll give you a quick illustration on this. You think that we're kind of free here in the United States and there's no big fear for us. Uh, I'll tell you something that we're really, really worried about. I currently serve as the chairman of the board for Houston's contemporary Christian music station, KSBJ. 
I've served on the board for a number of years. Last year and this year, I've been the chairman of the board. One of our biggest contingency plans deals with our signal, the signal that lets one million people a day listen to Christian music. We're on a tower that's owned by a secular corporation. We have a contract to be on that tower. That owner, any day, could say, we think Christians are spewing bigoted hatred. We're kicking you off our tower. And overnight, KSBJ stops broadcasting. If a secular tower owner says, you got to get your signal off of our tower, overnight, we stop broadcasting. We pray about that. We've got contingency plans for what do we do when that happens. We've got contingency plans over what do we do when we get sued because we're broadcasting Christian music and someone says that's hate speech. Now, if you look at what we broadcast, that's laughable because it's all about love. It's all about Jesus Christ. But to someone who's hostile, someone who has hatred, that's real persecution. So don't think we're necessarily free in the U.S. just because most of our uh, persecution is at a social level. we got to be very careful about things like that. Verse 22, Jesus says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sent. They have no excuse for their, now they have no excuse for their sin. The one who hates me also hates my father. If I had not done the works among them that no one else has done, they would not have sinned. Now they've seen and hated both me and my father. What Jesus is saying here is that he creates the ability to reflect the sin of the world. One of the most fascinating anthropological concepts I've ever been accustomed, been exposed to was when guys involved that I know in foreign missions come back from an undeveloped country. They told me when I was in college, and I still check them today to see if this is still true. They told me when I was in college, one of the things they tell them when they go into an undeveloped country is do not take a mirror. And I first heard that and I said, what? Don't take a mirror. So my buddy who would be going along on a college mission trip to some undeveloped part of the Amazon or the you know, deepest parts of Africa or something is told, don't take a mirror. What's going on? And so one of my buddies that led one of these missionary groups said, if you take a mirror into a culture that has never had a mirror and they look and see themselves and see what they look like, it scares them so bad because they don't look good. And they don't like how hard they look. They don't look how sun-baked they look. They don't look like sometimes how their faces are painted. And the majority of time, if you give someone in an unbelt country a mirror and they look at themselves, they will shatter the mirrors. They don't have to look at themselves. They think in their culture it's demonic. So they will shatter the mirror. So you've got to develop someone culturally before they will accept a mirror and be able to look at themselves and with the right mental state say, I look okay or I look good. Application for us, because we often hate what the mirror shows, we transfer our hate to the mirror itself. That's all Jesus does. Jesus is a mirror to the sin of the world. His perfect tone, his perfect words, his perfect message, his perfect life is a reflection of everyone around that is not healthy, that is sinful. And so when you mirror his mirror, you're reflecting back what they hate about themselves. You may have good language, they don't, they hate you even though they've got the bad language. You may have a good lifestyle, they have an unhealthy lifestyle, they hate you even though they've got the unhealthy lifestyle. 
it makes no sense, but it's the same type of mirror opposition we see in an undeveloped country. Life lesson out of this. While answers to prayers and other miracles are precious to us as believers, to non-believers, they're the source of contempt and anger. Be really, really careful how you share with a non-believer about God's answers to your prayers. Be careful how you share about God's blessings in your life. Because how you may be blessed in a relationship, you may be blessed vocationally, you may be blessed in all kinds of different aspects of life. Other people look at that when you give credit to God and what is the greatest source of comfort to you in an answer to prayer. A non-believer will look at that with anger and contempt because it's showing 25, but this happened. So the statement written in their scripture might be fulfilled. They hated me for no reason. This is a cross reference to Psalm 35 and Psalm 69, where David commented on the coming Messiah would be one that would be hated for no reason whatsoever. Jesus is saying this is scripture fulfilled. In our lives, when you're faced with some kind of social opposition or even greater opposition, the comfort should not be, or the the reflection should not be, what did I do to make them upset? What did I do to not get a dinner invitation or a lunch invitation at work? What made them say that mean thing to me? What made them not invite me to a holiday gathering with them? What made them not invite me to a social gathering with them? If you're in some parts of the world, what made them want to throw me in jail or want to kill me? The answer is it's a reflection of Christ in you as prophesied 2,000 years ago. It's not you. It's him in you, and that's where the opposition lies. Verse 26, Jesus gives the solution. How do we cope with all of this? It starts in verse 26. When the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father. The spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. You will also testify because you've been with me from the beginning. Now, Jesus says this is hard. He's talking to a bunch of disciples who are scared to death. Jesus is about to leave them. They have this inkling that he's going to die. He said he's going to go away. They think rather than rule Israel, he's going to die. They're scared. He says, you guys got to love each other through this. You got to carry each other through this. And the world outside of this room is going to hate you. So to the disciples, he says, the, the, the Holy Spirit is going to come. To us, he says, the Holy Spirit is there for you to help you. Now notice it says, he will testify about me. There's two aspects of this you need to understand of how the Holy Spirit gives you strength when you're under attack. You've got Satan whispering at you to drag you towards some type of sin. You've got Satan holding you in some type of addiction. You've got Satan pulling you in some aspect of life that you don't want to be involved in, but that you just feel the demonic opposition that you're in the middle of. You start to feel people doing that to you, whether it's a social rejection or an institutional rejection, you start to feel it. The answer is look to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through Scripture. Look to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Let me show you two Bible verses. Number one. Inspiration in Scripture, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 21. Prophecy, or telling forth the truth of the gospel, never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I could cross-reference other books in the Bible. It was written by men. It's got the personality of men. It is word for word inspired by the Holy Spirit and then preserved by the Holy Spirit down through the centuries. It's not just the musings of men. 
So scripture gives us the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of what God wants you to know when you're in addiction, when you're in sin, when you're pulled, it's scripture. We've got to focus on the word of God. Also, the Holy Spirit talks to us through the Holy Spirit inside of our hearts. Cross-reference the epistle of John, 1 John chapter 2, verses 20, and then I jump to 27. In chapter 2 of uh, the epistle of John, it says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you have knowledge. The anointing you receive from Him remains in you, and you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, His anointing teaches you about all things, and it's true not just a lie, just as He's taught you, remain in Him. Now, does this mean that you don't need Scripture? Of course not. Does this mean you don't need other wise Christians to give you some godly influence? Of course not. This means when you're in a bind, you've got a source of information. You're at a crossroads of sin where you say, I could do this, sinful, or I could do this, non-sinful. At that crossroads, most people don't say, where is my Bible? Let's go find it. Most people don't say, where's my phone, www.bible.org, right? You don't do that. Uh, Most people rarely say, let me get the phone and get a good Christian brother or sister on the phone and talk about this, right? Most of us are by ourselves, crossroads of sin. What do I do? This verse says the Holy Spirit inside of you will tell you what to do. The truth of do I do this sin or do I do that? Do I spend time in this pursuit of pleasure or this pursuit of something else that God wants me to do? 1 John chapter 2, 20 and 27 tells us it's inside of us and the Holy Spirit will give us the truth of knowing what's best for us, what's best for our long-term wants, our long-term needs. It gives us that kind of insight that's very, very helpful. Now, insight on the Holy Spirit does three big things. Comprehension. It can be comprehension of the Bible, but it's also comprehension of what's going on in my life. Why am I feeling this pull? Why am I drawn towards this sin? Why do I keep doing the same thing over and over again I don't want to do? Why am I stuck in addiction or why was I stuck in addiction? It's a comprehension of life that lets you see the satanic, demonic warfare you might have been in. Number two, it's conviction. It's conviction that what I want to do, what I'm drawn to, what I have a sin history of doing is wrong and God wants something better for me. And it's not a matter of will, it's a matter of having a system around me, of having a support network, of having a prayer network, of having a time in my Bible and a Bible study network to give me the conviction to stay on the path I'm supposed to be on. And the Holy Spirit also brings commitment, commitment to stay on the path, commitment to stay a part of something healthy, a commitment to stay with someone who's committed to your best interest, a commitment to what God's word is, a commitment to the things that God wants you to focus on to get you through life when you're pulled in different ways by this fallen DNA we have pulling us towards sin or pulling us towards some other aspect of life. In verse 26, I want to pause for just one second and show you how a little aspect of scripture can cause just enormous negative consequences. I flew past this, and unless some of you are a student of church history that I don't know about, you would see what I've highlighted up on the screen and think this is no big deal. Because I've highlighted on the screen verse 26, when the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth. That little phrase that I highlighted from the Father is the reason why for the last 1,000 years there's been a split 
between the Eastern Church and the Western Church of the world. When I say Eastern Church, I mean the Greek Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church. The Greek split that occurred around 1054 AD. The Western split was the Catholic Church. 1054, there was no Protestants, right? That came later with Martin Luther and John Calvin, all those guys, 500 years later. 1054, it was East versus West. West was the Pope. East was the Eastern Patriarch. The Eastern Church is still very prominent today. Those churches split off that highlighted verse. You say, what? That sounds like the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my whole life. Let me give you two minutes of history to show how volatile this can be. The Council of Nicaea came up with the Nicaean Creed, a statement of our church or a statement of our faith. And you've all heard it before, growing up, if you spend any time in church, there's a little part in the middle that says, We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the life giver who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. That came about from the Council of Nicaea in 325. Fast forward to the 500s. The Western Church added, after the phrase and the fa- from the Father, they added, and the Son. That addition to the Nicene Creed, to the creed of what it meant to be a Christian, adding the phrase and the son, isn't objectionable. The question was, where did it come from? And it created a split between those in the eastern side of the Christian world that said it's father to son, father to Holy Spirit. In the western church, the Pope, the Roman Catholic Church, they said the Holy Spirit could come from the father and the son. Now, Because of the Trinity, because of the nature of the Godhead, I think the Christian view, sorry, I should say the Western view, is not objectionable. It should not be objectionable because the Holy Spirit is just as from the Son as it is from the Father. Based on John 15, the phrase I just read to you where it says clearly the Holy Spirit comes from the Father, is also not objectionable in the Eastern world. The question is, why does the church of God have to split in half for a thousand years over disagreement over scripture? And the reason is because we're in satanic warfare. Because if Satan wants to split the church, it's going to drive it apart over something as silly as three little verses or three little words in John chapter 15. So you look at it and you go, that sounds like the dumbest thing I've ever heard. The answer is, you're right. That is the dumbest thing you've ever heard, but it shows the playground Satan is playing in because if Satan can take that and make people hate each other as Christians, it should not come as a surprise why they hate you for praying over your meal, for why they hate you for saying God answered a prayer of mine, why they hate you because you talk about going to church on Sunday or your commitment to God or how you're searching to do God's will to influence other people. If you understand the battlefield of spiritual warfare that has led to things like a thousand Christian denominations because the Baptists couldn't get along with the Methodist or the Church of Christ couldn't get along with the Assemblies of God or whatever all the splits are, that's the result of spiritual warfare. And if Satan can drive Christians apart to say, I won't sit in the same building with you on Sunday mornings, imagine the playground to keep you apart from a non-believer 
that you're just trying to show who Jesus Christ is. And Satan says, no, I'm just going to make them hate you so they never want to spend time with you at all. It's a spiritual warfare that we can't comprehend because it's been going on for millennium and it will continue to go on in the days of our lives. In our world, we still have the split between the Eastern and the Western church and Christianity. It's gotten a little bit closer over the years, but still there's a very radical split uh, and it's very unfortunate. Now, back to John. I've decided to end our passage in the last little bit of time I've got by jumping into John 16. Understand the chapter breaks were added centuries after Jesus spoke these words and John wrote these words. In my opinion, there should not be a chapter break between 15 and 16. The reason there is, if you taught it all as one big chapter, chapter 15 would be really, really long, like the longest chapter in all of the New Testament. So we've got this arbitrary break between 15 and 16, but topically, the first few verses of chapter 16 carry on what we're talking about in chapter 15, so I've got to end there. He says, I've told you these things. What things? Well, I just told you in chapter 15. I've told you these things to keep you from stumbling. They will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering service to God. But I've told you these things so that when their time comes, you may remember I told them to you. Our insight on that passage is for the last 2,000 years, some of the greatest opposition to the truth of the word of God have come from religious leaders charged with knowing the truth of his word. I could stop here if time permitted and do a lengthy discussion about the Catholic-Protestant split. We could talk more about the Eastern and Western split. We could talk about all kinds of issues where even within the church, the Christian church, there's been times of false teaching and false doctrine and false beliefs. The point for us today is in Jesus' culture, he was saying the people that ought to know the word of God, the Jewish leaders of his day, are going to be where they would find their greatest opposition. In our culture today, when I teach something like this, people are like, Satan and his forces? Chris, I got that. I'm on notice. Non-believers who hate me for praying and being a Christian? I got that. But then I go to here and I say, and it can also be people who also profess to be Christians. Whoa. I thought we were on the same team. You mean somebody who professes to be a Christian can hate me for praying over a meal? Yes. They can hate me for wanting to lead a Bible study of kids? Yes. They can hate me for saying God answered my prayers last week. Let me tell you how God answered my prayers. Yes. You can expect opposition across the entire human spectrum. Christian, non-Christian, human, non-human. Basically, anyone on the planet Earth you can expect opposition from being a Christian. How's that for an uplifting message on Sunday morning in Chris Martin Sunday School class? Yay! I'm not trying to depress you. Verse 1, the whole reason we did this is Jesus said, if I can go back, it won't go back on me. I won't go back. Jesus said, to start it, I'm telling you this so you won't stumble. He's telling this so that you're not going to be depressed, you're not going to be down knowing there's opposition in the world around us. Now, you may pause for just a second and say, okay, Chris, I'll try not to be depressed. Satan is at war with me because I'm a Christian. That's tough to tolerate, but I can do it. Non-believers hate my guts because I'm a believer. That's tough to accept, but I can accept that. Other people that call themselves Christians aren't going to like me, too, maybe. That's a little tougher to accept, but I can kind of sort of wrap my brain around that. I'm just going to be faithful. 
But why? Why is that? Why, why is that a good system? Why? Why didn't God just fiat something different? Why not just fiat the demons are going to like me? Why not fiat Satan get out of my life? Why not answer my prayer and just ban Satan from me? Why not just make all these non-believers who hate me love God and so we can all be friends? Why not take the Christians who are mad at me for praying or doing ministry and make them see the same thing? God could do that, but he's got a plan for your life and my life and the world we live in, and we can't see it because he's shaping us for something different. The greatest illustration on this that I've ever heard in my life came from Billy Graham. Billy Graham, early in his ministry, way back in his 20s, felt like the world's biggest disaster. He tried to share his faith and no one would listen to him. He said, I'm having a revival and no one would come, like the members of the church, but nobody else. He would preach and no one would come down front. He would speak out in, in a public square on the local radio or television and just get hate mail. And he went into a period of depression where he said, I don't understand. I'm a failure in ministry. I tried to stand up and do what God wanted me to do, and it's just been a total failure. No converts, nobody coming to my revivals, nobody coming to hear God's word. I'm a total failure. And he just went walking one afternoon, just in depression, just could not contemplate going to preach a revival that night to an empty church where no one was going to come down front. And he came upon a building where they were building another church in town. And a guy was down there working on a piece of stone that was in the form of a triangle. And he was just being as delicate to it and as gentle. And he had little tools and he had a little tiny hammer and he was hammering on it, working on it. And Billy looked at the guy and he said, what are you doing? I understand. Why such fine detail on that piece of rock? And the guy pointed way up top on the steeple. And he said, I'm working down here to make something right for its use up there. And Billy said, God convicted him right there that the opposition, the rejection, everything he was going through was preparing him down here for something God wanted up there. It means the opposition down here makes no sense to get that triangle to fit in just the right way up there. You're never going to understand, God, why is Satan messing with me for this sin pull that I have, this sinful DNA I've got? Why is God putting this person in my life that's so hostile to me, that rejects me so bad? Why is God putting this person in my life that I thought was a Christian and they hate me even worse than the non-Christians? You don't understand it, but it's God shaping all of us to get us ready for something up there. Let me give you a couple of words of application. We will end. Number one, there's a great difference between discouraging persecution and encouraging opposition. I phrased it that way to understand that discouraging persecution is when your perspective is, I'm getting assaulted. I'm getting verbally assaulted. I'm getting rejected. I'm getting hated for what I've said or done. That's always discouraging. Encouraging opposition is the ability to mentally say, if I wasn't doing something right for God, Satan would leave me alone. I can look at times when people reject me, when lawyers, when non-believers, when other people just reject me because I'm a Christian. And I can find encouragement in that because if I wasn't doing what I thought God wanted me to do and stand up and teach you guys most Sundays, Satan would totally leave me alone. Satan would leave my family alone. 
Satan would leave my law firm alone. Satan would leave all kinds of things alone if I would just stop teaching you guys. But when I say I'm going to follow my spiritual calling and my spiritual gifts and I'm going to teach what I think God wants me to teach, I'm basically saying, Satan, war on. Come on. I can't fight that fight on my own. But it's an encouraging opposition because I know that if I'm not doing God's will, Satan is like, I don't need to mess with Chris. He's exactly where I want him to be. Sin and sin and sin. And this is great. He's ignoring God's will and God's word. But if I'm doing God's will and God's word, I'm going to expect opposition, which means there's a little bit of encouragement in the midst of that opposition. Cross-reference here is Matthew 5. The Beatitudes. Blessed are those who've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. That's Jesus saying when that opposition and that persecution is because you're a believer, that's a blessed state. That's God saying, I know where you are. I know what you're going through. I'm going to bless you in a way you can't think about right now. But I'm going to bless you. Maybe later, maybe in heaven, but blessings coming. Application number two, there's a great difference between picking a fight and enduring persecution. I know a lot of Christians that will come to me over breakfast and say, man, you're not going to believe the opposition I'm going through. And I'm like, yeah, tell me about it. Well, I've been going after this person that's having an affair on his wife, and I've just been in his face for the last three months, and he just hates my guts for throwing it back in his face. And I'm like, you picked a fight, you idiot. Right? Guys want to pick fights sometimes. They think they're evangelizing. They're not. They're just being a jerk to somebody else who's struggling in sin. It's not warm. It's not encouraging. It's a guy picking a fight. I know all kinds of believers that'll like pretend to say nice things. They're really just kind of picking a fight because they don't like the way someone acts, the way someone speaks or something that they do. There's a huge difference between picking a fight and enduring persecution. Persecution is loving as Christ loved. Having friends who are sinners, not just throwing spears all the time, and still going through persecution despite your love. Point number three, there's a great difference in living in the world and becoming a part of it. The fact that you and I are still here. The fact God has not taken you and I to heaven means there's something God wants you to do still. I could pass the microphone around and say, why are you still here? And we can all talk about why we think we're still here, but there's a reason every single one of you are still here. And it's not because God forgot about you and he's later going to call you to heaven. If you're still here, there's something God wants you to do. That means living in the world, not becoming a part of the world. Final point. There's a great difference between living in fear and exercising caution. I am in the midst of spiritual warfare. Because I teach you guys, because I tell my family we're going to pray before our meals, because I tell my law firm we're going to be Christian lawyers, because my law firm prays before we do things as a firm, like our partner meetings. We're unabashedly Christian. That puts me in the middle of spiritual warfare. I live my life not in fear. Now, I live my life with tremendous caution Knowing I'm in spiritual warfare means I got to do certain things. I got to do certain things in God's word. I got to do certain things in terms of who I surround myself with. I got to do certain things in terms of my leisure time. I got to do certain things in terms of my professional time. I exercise a great deal of caution. I don't live in fear. In my studies this week, I came across a quote that captures all of these application points. It's just a couple of sentences from a theologian, a pastor named A.W. Tozer. 
He wrote decades ago, but this is just as true today as it was decades ago when he wrote it. I'll end on this. Men think of the world not as a battleground, but as a playground. We are not here to fight. We are here to frolic. We are not in a foreign land. We're actually at home. We're not getting ready to live, but we're already living. And the best we can do is rid ourselves of our inhibitions and our frustrations and live this life to the full. That was the preface to his book, Playground or Battleground. And the entire book was about what I just taught you. Spiritual warfare, John 15, message to the disciples, you're walking into battle with a target on your chest because you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You get through it with the Holy Spirit, his word, his message in your heart, and you cling to him like a little kid clings to daddy's leg, hanging on for dear life, not understanding where the ride's going, but knowing I'm hanging close to him because he can fight the battle, he can win the battle. It is never a matter of our will. It's never a matter of saying, I'm going to do better this week and I'm not going to do that sin again. It's not a matter of us saying, I'm going to live my life and not be pulled into that addiction that I've been in for years and years. It's not saying I'm going to do something and just go on and live my life the way I think it's best to live it. It's saying I'm going to live in accordance with God's word, in accordance with the Holy Spirit in my heart, surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage me. One day at a time, not living in fear, but living in caution, living in the world, but not living as a part of the world. I'm living in a way that's going to keep me as close to God as I can possibly be so he can guide my steps one at a time with a little flashlight ahead of me, not looking and worried about months and months and years and years down the road, but what's right in front of me. And you can do that, and I can do that. We're not going to get hung up on next year, next decade. We're going to focus on tomorrow and this week. If I focus on that, I can live in caution, not fear. I can live in peace, not not hostility. I can live in all kinds of different things in his will. And as Tozer said, think about it as a battleground, not a playground, which means I'm always on high alert and I'm always looking for the leader of the battle, Jesus Christ, to fight the fight. I'm just a soldier behind him saying, where do you want me to go? Can you all do that this week? I'm praying for you. Thank you for you all praying for me. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come and study your word. We thank you for the chance to be encouraged. We thank you for the chance to be lifted up in our own concerns about our own histories, concerns about fears that we've had, concerns about the futures that we may have. And we just say, God, with the Holy Spirit inside of us, speak to us. Comfort us. Encourage us. Help us live with the knowledge of your forgiveness of our prior sins. With the Holy Spirit, give us strength, give us discernment, give us opportunities to minister and share you. And when we are persecuted by Satan and his forces, when we are persecuted by people around us, when we hear of persecution, give us your wisdom on how to react. Give us your wisdom on where to go in your word to find truth. Give us wisdom to know when to come to you in prayer to find strength. Through the strength that we find only through Jesus Christ, through the power in the name of Jesus Christ, we ask all of these things until we're here together again next week. Amen. Thank you all. Have a great week. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.